Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. The following episode may contain swearing. Alone in a Room with Invisible People is brought to you by hollyswritingclasses.com. If you find value in what we do and you'd like to support the podcast, go to coffee.com, that's K-O hyphen F-I.com forward slash alone, or you can go to alonewithinvisiblepeople.com forward slash support us to find out more. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Gallardo, the host of Alone in a Room with Invisible People. Uh, We have had some technical difficulties this week. My goodness. So what we are doing instead is bringing you another one of the uh, combined old 2006 Holly Lyle on writing. Just remember the quality of her setup at the time was not great. You're going to hear some really loud puh sounds, you know, the, the pops, there, there might be some background noises or something like that as well. So also any of the things that she might mention, remember that the links might not be accurate. I have edited out a a significant portion of things that are no longer valid. This advice is also from 2006. (laughs) So, uh, there are some things that Holly has altered uh, but most of it is still good. I think that any longtime listeners will laugh when she talks about um, outlining. There is a, a, a little bit in there that I thought was was a little bit funny considering her, her most recent stance on this. But as, as we say, there's no one true way. And this is something that Holly has made mention of several times. It's not just that there is no one true way to write in general. It's also that there is no one true way to write a book. And we will be back next week with our regularly scheduled Alone in a Room with Invisible People podcast. So I there will be a little bit of a portion of me saying, you know, this is the second episode. But for this moment right now, please enjoy the first episode. Thank you so much, guys. Welcome to Holly Lyle on Writing. This is episode three. I'm Holly Lyle. And this episode, I'll be answering some of the many, many questions that I have received from listeners. My first four questions come from 14-year-old writer Ryan, who, along with his, his co-author Chris, has uh, asked four of the most popular questions that I ever get. So I'm going to go ahead and take them in the order that he sent them. He says, My friend and I have written a short 12-chapter book, and we have a few questions. First, I would like to know... Uh, What company took your manuscripts to get them published? What I did to find out places that might publish my book when I was very first getting started, um, I went through the stack of books that I had on my bookshelves that I liked that were kind of like the book that I had written. That means that they were the same genre, uh, they were in sort of the same style, and I made a list of these companies, and then I went to the library and I took out a book called Writer's Market. Um, There are a number of books on the market that are like it, but if you don't get that one, you do need to at least look at one of them. They tell you uh, who is accepting manuscripts, in what format they're accepting manuscripts, which portion of the manuscript they want to look at, which editors would be interested in your book as opposed to which editors most certainly would not. The second question that Ryan asks 
is next I would like to know how much it costs to publish and how much money you can get by selling the book. Okay, repeat after me. Writers get paid to write. We're going to say this again. Writers get paid to write. You do not pay the publisher to publish your book. The publisher pays you. Now, the publisher may be a small publisher that can't afford to pay you until after the books start to sell. That's okay. That's legit. The publisher is still taking the risk of either putting your book into a binding and doing the copy editing and doing the print and uh, buying the paper and the supplies and everything to create the book that he will then send out. Or you will work with a bigger publisher and the publisher will pay you up front with what is called an advance. If you are involved with a publisher who is saying, well, in order for us to publish your book, we need $5,000 from you, $500 from you, $300 from you, $10,000 from you, then you are involved in what is commonly known of as a scam. Do not pay the publisher. The publisher pays you. The third question that uh, Ryan asks is, can two authors publish one book? Because we both wrote equal portions of it. Yes, you can. This is called collaboration. Before you get too deeply into it, the two of you need to sit down and write out an agreement that says which of you owns which portions of the book and that allows you, if you stop being friends or something awful happens, to take your portion of the book, your characters, your story, your background, everything that you did, and move it over into a world of your own. I know you don't want to think about this. This is not fun, but... Um, Collaborations, unfortunately, have a very nasty habit of going bad somewhere along the way, and you want to make sure that you own your own material and both of you agree which material is yours and which is his. Fourth question. Uh, finally, I'd like your advice and comments on our first chapter because we are still in the rough draft to type stage. I don't actually uh, critique manuscripts. Uh, however, what you need is to finish it, correct the grammar, correct the spelling, um, and then find an editor who would be willing to look at it and ask the editor's opinion because what a writer thinks of your writing is considerably less important than what the person who has the possibility of buying it thinks of your writing. Um, those are the four questions from, from Ryan. They were really good questions. That's why I answered all of them. My next question comes from Jeffrey who says, Hey, Holly. First off, I just wanted to say how much I enjoy not only your website, but your novels as well. I kind of stumbled across you roughly a year ago and have been a reader ever since, knocking out 11 of your novels at that time. First off, let me stop for authorial intrusion. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you seriously very much. People who go out and buy the author's books are the reason why writers still keep, keep writing. If it weren't for folks like you, I would not have a job, so thank you very much. Onward. Uh, to the question, I am currently writing a novel myself. I have a world, 3,000 years of history, four major regions, ten established cultures, six languages, hundreds of towns, villages, cities, and urban centers, and six major characters, all named. I've taken time to give each name meaning, but allowed the characters to develop, and let me know what their name was meant to be instead of starting a name and developing a character around it. My problem is that I need more than six characters to drive my story. They need to speak with, run from, fight with, avoid, shop with, and in all other ways, interact with sub-characters. All of my sub-characters are either currently nameless or have terrible names. Example, a fisherman named Pike. Yeah, that's a bad name. How can I find the right names for the right sub-characters without spending the great amount of time it would take to figure out everything about them? Thanks for your time. Okay, um, you've already developed the cultures. 
you've already developed the languages. So you're 99% of the way there. Um, what you do is you use the alphabets and the grammars that you came up with for your languages and you develop um, sound clusters from the different sounds that each of your languages uses. You take these sound clusters, little bits like say one language uses the K-A-K -K sound for the, like, the last part of the name for males. Uh, sort of like we use A as the last part of the first name for females frequently. Then you take uh, one of your nouns or one of your verbs, you wiggle it around a little bit, you stick your K-A-K on the end, and you have a guy's name. Don't have to worry about what it means, not important what it means. Doesn't have to fit the character, does not have to be meaningful as some sort of literary device. It's a name. Bob. What does Bob mean? Bob's a sound. Uh, it's a thing you call Bob. And that's all it needs to be. Don't get too, too swallowed up in all of the details and all of the, the fascinating world building. And dude, I totally understand. I love building. I live world building. But it's entirely possible to spend so much time on the world building that you don't write the book. Just sounds, nice little beginning things like D'Artagnan, the last, the, the little D at the beginning with the apostrophe, that's uh, a thing that indicates that it's a French name. That's cool. Do something like that for your last name. So, you know, a little, little letter cluster at the beginning, apostrophes, hyphens, whatever you want to do to associate this particular name with this particular group of people. For secondary characters, you don't need to go any deeper than that. Okay, next question. Lonnie asks, uh, you mentioned in episode one that you've read a bunch of beginner's manuscripts. I know you previously did an auction giving away a couple of manuscript crits. Are you planning on doing more of that? I was hoping to bid on a crit for my novel, uh, title of novel, but couldn't afford to join in then. I read a lot of beginner's manuscripts when I was getting started. I was, for a while, an instructor for the Writer's Digest School. I did a bunch of crits online at Forward Motion when I first started that up. I don't do many crits anymore. I don't really have the time. And I had some time back at the end of last year because I had a, a big gap in my writing schedule and decided that doing some crits would be a nice way to cover the gap. But uh, there is no no schedule of when I'm planning to do any more. I'm, I'm not sure that I will do any more. It all depends on uh, how full my writing schedule stays. So uh, the answer to that is a qualified maybe. Kyler has a couple of questions. His first is, I've looked all over the website looking for the work-in-progress bars for my own work. I can't find them anywhere. I don't know if they're a program that you and the many others who use them use, uh, or if it's part of your HTML programming. I would like to learn where I can find them. If there's something you have to make by yourself, then I don't need a big explanation. That would probably take lots of time in your show. But if they are something you have to make yourself, then could you please tell me so I don't look anymore? Thank you so much. Well, you're in luck. The program was written by Margaret Fisk. She is a member of the Forward Motion Writers community, which is available at FM Writers. That's F M W R I T E R S dot com. The community is free. 
Uh, everything in it is free. If you join, then you can get a bar like that on your own uh, for your for your own website. And kudos to Margaret, who has done some really amazing programs for the community. Kyler's second question is, in episode one of your show, you talked about starting right in the middle of the action. I totally agree. But one thing I wanted to know was about prologues. Do you recommend them? In my current work, I have a prologue. I am not trying to explain everything, but trying to use it to get people to wonder what's going on, which I plan to reveal in the chapters. I started off in the middle of action. A man opens a door and starts talking about something none of the readers should know about, just the other characters and me, of course. So do you recommend prologues if they start with the action and don't inform the readers with lots of info? I don't recommend prologues for anything, to be real honest with you. I hate them. To me, you start the story with the story, and teasers and backstory and all of that, it's, it's not the story. I know there are folks who like them. I know that there are editors who use them. And I had one editor who made me use them for two books. And I, I still hate them in the books. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I don't read them in other people's books. As far as I'm concerned, when you get to the story, I'll start reading. I'm going to skip the prologue. This is me. That said, it does sound that like you have at least taken the one possible way that I think actually works with prologue, in that you're you're starting the story with it. I'd recommend just starting it as chapter one. Again, that's me. This is a personal opinion. This is not something that's going to cause an editor to kick your book out the door. Uh, if the writing is good, I mean, obviously, if the writing is good, if the writing sucks, forget it. Or if, if it's just tedious, endless backstory. I think prologues encourage sloppy thinking and sloppy writing. But again... There is no one true way in writing, in anything in writing. There is no one absolute path that you must take. There is no one right answer. If you feel, if you think that you, if you really need that prologue in there, then leave it in. At this point, I guess I need to know that a lot of you have written in some really, really nice things, telling me how much you like my books or uh, how much you like my website. Uh, in the interests of saving space and time, I have cut most of those comments. But for every one of you who wrote, wrote in and said that, please know that I, I read the whole thing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for buying my books. Thank you for reading my website. Um, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Now on to our next question, which is from Don. And Don says, I can never find anyone's world notes online and was wondering, how do you lay yours out? Also, do you do them longhand or via computer? Well, Don, you're in luck. Mine are online. I do a lot of the stuff on computer, outlining and figuring out how the world works. I do a lot of stuff freehand. I do a lot of drawings. I do a lot of um, maps. Uh, I, I take a lot of notes freehand. It's, it's a complete hodgepodge. Uh, my world-building notebooks are, are big and fat and, and confuddled. <laughs> But, like I said, they're online. If you go to my homepage, which is hollylyle.com, H-O-L-L-Y-L-I-S-L-E.com, and you look in the blue home index column on the very right, the second major subheader down that is for readers. And the fourth bullet point under for readers is surprises. If you click through to surprises, you will find um, some of my world-building notes. You'll find some of my world-building maps and um, my 
drawings of costumes and uh, layouts of boat plans and just uh, just a ton of stuff. Alphabets that I've done, just a ton of stuff that I have done as background for some of the books that, that I do. I got this great listener anecdote from Noelle. She says, I don't have a specific question, but just wanted to tell you that I appreciate what you're doing to encourage new writers. I've always used the sit-down-and-start-typing method of writing stories, and it does not produce marketable fiction. Yeah, not usually. She says, I had a bit of an aha moment in talking to my partner about your work. I was whining about my storytelling skills, and he commented that I was a good game master for role-playing games. I said, "Hun, you have no idea how much preparation goes into those campaigns. I have to make sure I have an idea of what's in closets. Um, right. Red face. Yeah, I, I sympathize with that. I used to run people through my worlds. I was, I was a DM. I was a dungeon master. Uh, I liked the GURPS system, for those of you who are geeks like me. And I would put together portions of books that I was working on, uh, set up the worlds in gaming form, and run my friends through them and do horrible, horrible, horrible things to them. And then I would use some of the, the horrible things that I did to them as idea boosters and starters for stories that I was working on. It's world building, dungeon mastering, uh, gaming, uh, both online gaming, or not, I'm sorry, not online gaming, but both live role-playing gaming and role-playing gaming on the computer or on your, your platform are really good ways of figuring out how, how worlds go together. They're not so hot for putting together stories, but they are fine, fine, fine if you're wanting to figure out how to build your own world. And yeah, details matter. Details, outlines, I outline everything. We will probably do uh, a couple of shows on outlining everything. Kyler writes, In your wondrous archives of information, I remember reading about themes. You told us about writing our books based on themes that no one has used before and about building new bridges across the deep canyon. My big question, though, is how do I put this theme into my book? How do I write my story but employ my theme into it? I believe I can write my book and find themes, but how do I employ the theme I want to write on into my work? It just seems a little daunting to me. Well, first off, the article that Kyler referenced is uh, finding your themes, but to answer the question of how you actually write your themes into your story, what you do is you think of a story that uses your theme as, as the primary conflict or a secondary conflict. You, you leave, you, <laughs> this is, this is, it's not hard. It really isn't hard. You have to be passionate about what you write. You have to really care about the story that you're telling. You have to, you have to want to get something across to your characters. You, you want to, to make them live and breathe and believe their world and the rules that their world operates by and to face this conflict that you have given them, this theme that you have given them, as something that they believe from two completely different sides. Uh, one of them is for it, one of them is against it. You, you let them fight it out, you make the conflict real, you do not give them easy answers, you don't cheat and make one of them a straw character because you are f strongly in favor of one side of the argument and strongly against the other side of the argument, so that you make the people who are against the argument uh, idiots, you don't do that. A lot of it is about passion. A lot of it is about loving what you're writing. And if you love what you're writing, and if you love the story that you are telling, and if you have been honest in creating characters, both good and bad, to present their sides of the theme, 
then the theme will write itself into your story and you won't have to worry about it. This is one of those things that really comes with experience. It was it was hard for me in my first books. It has become progressively easier uh, as I'm closing on 30 novels. It's, um, it, it's never easy because if you're telling the truth, it's going to hurt. But it's, it's easier. It's, it's easier to make yourself tell the truth. I've, I've frequently referred to writing as uh, dancing naked on your roof. And I think this is a fair analogy for what you're doing with themes. Because any theme worth anything is going to be something that you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about it, it's the wrong theme for the story. And if you're passionate about it, then you are going to be putting a lot of yourself into the story. And people are going to read the story, and they're going to see you. And that's a very uncomfortable thing. I think beginning writers especially are very leery about getting naked up on the roof there and dancing. It's, it's never comfortable. It's not comfortable for me now. But it's the job. Alrighty, and here is the next episode. Um, the first question is from Sally, and she says, I've read three of your books so far after reading how they were written, and I'm plan and planning to start my fourth. My favorite so far are Last Girl Dancing and Midnight Rain, and my first question is, how do you keep a story interesting? With both the novels mentioned, I couldn't put them down and wondered how you were able to achieve that technique. What I do is I only write the parts that interest me. Um, to give you an example of this, I'm going to read you a short excerpt from I See You, which is my next suspense novel. It's coming out on July 5th of this year. It's going to be available in better bookstores everywhere and, of course, online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Um, it's about paramedics, and uh, they get involved with some very nasty murders. And here's where we start. Their radio crackled to life. Rescue 28, do you read? Dia jumped into the truck and grabbed the handset. This is Rescue 28, go ahead. We have a call on a code 140 animal bite. Alligator on back porch attacked unsuspecting woman walking out her door. She gave them a street address and a cross street and added, Anim Police and animal controller dispatched. Proceed code 3. Shit, Dia said. Ryan drove. Dia took the passenger seat and Tyler rode in the jump seat. Bets on how big the alligator is, he asked. Five feet, nose to tip of tail, Ryan said. Bigger than that and she wouldn't be able to call for help. We don't know that she did call for help. Might have been a neighbor who saw what was going on, or a family member. Might have been, but I'm guessing it wasn't, Ryan said. Tyler said, I'm saying six feet, nose to tip of tail. That's big enough to do some damage. This won't be critical, though. Today is going to insist, consist entirely of crap calls. You predicting that? Dia asked. Is this the big one speaking, or Tyler with his brain on iPod? Straight big one, he said. This is pure gut feeling. Good, then, Ryan said. We could use a calm day. I hate your gut feelings, oh, big one. Dia sighed. But back to the alligator. That leaves me with either seven feet, which is nearly big enough to drag her back to the canal, or four feet or under, which would be pretty unlikely to go after an adult woman, I'd think. Goddamn, dinosaurs are evil. I don't think they care how big you are, Ryan said. They scare the shit out of me. Dia closed her eyes. Either of you guys ever check your stoop for alligators before you step out your door? Ryan laughed. Are you kidding? I just walk out the door. I have a flight of stairs to walk down from my crappy little room, and if an alligator ever climbed all the way up them, I figure he deserves to eat me. He worked hard enough for the privilege. From the back, Tyler said, I never even think about it. 
The sirens screamed, cars moved out of the way, or didn't, depending on the age, alertness, and asshole factor of the driver in the question. And Dia sat there considering bad ways to start a day. Having an alligator attack when you stepped out the door seemed to her like a pretty bad one. So, what do you do if you walk outside to check your mail or something and a gator charges you? How the hell do you deal with that? All three of them were quiet. Dia couldn't think of anything to say. Apparently, neither could the other two. They can run 35 miles an hour in short sprints, Tyler eventually said into the silence. And their jaws are strong closing, but so weak opening that if they're closed, you can shut them with one hand. You can hold them shut with one hand, sorry. Dia and Ryan exchanged glances, and Ryan said, uh, Maybe so, dude. But would you want to be in a position to try? I'm just hoping this one is already dead and out of the way when we get there, Dia said. I'll deal with drunks and druggies and guys with guns and knives, but I draw the line at alligator wrestling. The other two laughed. That would be a lot funnier if it wasn't true. Ryan turned on the cross street they'd been given and pointed down to two police cars, an animal control truck, and a small crowd of men and women standing on the sidewalk and in the street, all of whom turned and began jumping up and down, pointing to the house on the right and waving their arms. Well, look at that, Dia said. Group ambulance boogie, more than eight people, nobody running to the house. I say the alligator is four feet long or under, it got hold of the woman's clothes, and she doesn't have a scratch on her, and that at this point somebody has trapped it under some form of furniture. I want to change my bet, Tyler said. I'm holding steady with mine, Ryan said. They pulled into a neighbor's driveway and got out. Dia lugged her paramedic kit, while Ryan and Tyler took the stretcher just in case. From the back of the house, they could hear running feet, screaming, thumping, thwacking noises, and heavy objects being moved. Doesn't sound like they have everything under control yet, Tyler said. We could, uh, wait in the car. Wait, ooh, sorry, wait in the truck. Ryan and Dia looked at each other, and Dia said, And miss watching the fun? Are you nuts? She broke into a trot and loped around the corner. The scene was pretty much what she'd imagined. There was a woman up on the beams of a very nice solid wood pergola. She was screaming. And there was a lot of blood on the concrete, but Dia couldn't see where she was doing any bleeding at the moment. Well, maybe she'd cut herself climbing onto her pergola, which, considering the woman's size, indicated a significant triumph of fear over gravity. And Dia wouldn't lose any betting points for a climbing injury. On the ground, there was one lean, mean young alligator about four feet long, whipping his head around and charging at the cops and the one animal control officer who'd responded to the scene. The animal control officer was attempting to get a loop around the gator's nose and not having much luck with it. The little bastard was fast. The cops were wielding everything from deck chairs to stray baseball bat one had picked up and attempting to corral the gator toward the animal control officer's loop. Everyone was trying to stay out of the way of the gator's jaws and tail, though. You guys will be ready to take that act on the road any day now, Ryan said. A sweating, exasperated cop glared over at Ryan and said, Grab a chair, shithead. There's enough fun here for everyone. Dia called to the young woman. Ma'am, where are you hurt? She had to yell twice because the first time the alligator charged one of the cops just as Dia shouted and the woman shrieked. She heard the second time, though. The woman called back. I'm not hurt. Well, I have some scrapes on my legs from climbing, but I'm fine. Who's bleeding then? Dia asked. She immediately wished she hadn't because the woman's face crumpled and she burst into tears. That monster ate Bobby. Dia and Tyler and Ryan exchanged horrified glances. Gator wasn't huge. A kid would have to be awfully small. Her chihuahua, one of the cops said before the EMTs had a chance to get too worked up. The gator grabbed the dog as they came out the door. She went after the gator and tried to save the dog. The gator didn't take that too well. So, uh, my secret for writing, keeping a story interesting is just to write the parts that interest me. 
I had a lot of fun writing the alligator scene. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, I had a lot of fun writing the book, and I did it because I left out anything that I didn't think, wow, you know, I really want to know what happens here. My next question is from Sherry. She writes, I've recently began planning my first novel, and I have a couple questions cross my mind. My first one is, would you recommend creating a language for a fantasy novel? If so, is there some place I could look to guide me through creating one? I'm having a hard time understanding some of the ones I've found. Yes, I would recommend creating a language for a fantasy novel because the language your characters speak changes the way they think and the way they view the world. Words are the window through which our thoughts can travel. And every single language permits people different kinds of thoughts and different ways of approaching and viewing the world. Um, as to where you can find a book on or a, any, any source of resource on creating languages, I have just finished the Create a Language Clinic. It is available in ebook form on my website. People who have used it so far have had a lot of fun creating their languages. For your second question, my second question is when should a novel have a sequel? I don't mean a trilogy, but just a second book to go with the first. The answer to that question is when your editor calls you up and says, hey, the first book has sold so well that we want a sequel, that's when you do a sequel. I hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast. Remember that next week we will be back on our regularly scheduled Alone in a Room with Invisible People. We have a bunch of things lined up for you. Don't forget, we're also doing Summer of Fiction again. That will be starting in June, so you're you're definitely going to want to jump in there if you've got the time, uh, if you've got the space, if you know you've, you've got kids. Remember, we've got the How to Create a Hero, Superhero, last year, and I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure if Holly's doing new things or if you, or what but, but we'll have to talk about that but we've got a lot of things coming up so you can follow us on the socials that is at a-i-a-r-w-i-p on twitter alone in a room with invisible people on facebook alone with invisible people on instagram you can also follow holly on instagram that's at h-o-l-l-y dot l-i-s-l-e you can follow me on instagram that's rgalardo it's at r-g-a-l-a-r-d-o if you would like to support the podcast, we have a coffee account that is ko-fi.com forward slash alone. We also have a drop down menu on our website at alonewithinvisiblepeople.com that gives three different tiers. We've also got different ways as far as buying through the podcast links in the show notes at our website. And if you would like to support Holly, go buy her fiction, go buy her classes, I'm, I'm a huge fan and I'm not the only one. If you're wondering which class is best for you, go into the forums and ask some people. Tell them what your story is. Tell them what you're looking at as far as your your the issues that you're coming into at the moment. And ask them, hey, you know, what do you think that I would benefit most from right now? And again, remember, the forums are free and so is the podcast. So if all you can do is share, that's huge. That's, that's gigantic because it's, you know, without listeners, we've got no reason to do this podcast in the first place. So if you've got writer friends, if you've got, you know, acquaintances that you know are writers, if you've got people that you've been telling forever, you know, like, oh, you really, you really should write, even though we don't use that term should, um, tell them about the podcast. You know, we, we appreciate every single one of you guys. We love you guys. And we are going to be so happy to see you next week. Thank you so much.